Janet, we're, we're starting. Love Talk Radio. I know, I'm not doing it on my phone. Hello, my name is Ian Hood, and welcome to the APTA Neurosection's Vestibular Special Interest Group podcast on benign paroxysmal positional vertigo. BPPV, or benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, is the most common form of peripheral vertigo. It can affect all ages, but is more prevalent later in life with a lifetime prevalence of 2.4%. It is a mechanical problem caused by calcium carbonate crystals breaking loose from the utricle and moving into the semicircular canal. The particles can be free-floating within the canal, which is called canalothiasis, or adherent to the cupula, which is called cupulothiasis, with the posterior canal being most affected, followed by the lateral canal, and then the anterior canal. Vertigo is elicited by position change causing the calcium carbonate crystals to deflect the cupula, which will send the information to the person's brain that they are moving when they are really not, which causes nystagmus and a sensation of spinning or vertigo that can last from several seconds to several minutes. There are multiple non-invasive treatment options, including some recent advances in the treatment of BPPV, in addition to a recent release of the BPPV Current Practice Guideline, or CPG, that has prompted the Vestibular Special Interest Group to update our original BPPV podcast. With us today, I have two experts in the management of BPPV. We have Dr. Janet Helminski and Dr. Ann Galgum. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. 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 Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Helminski is a professor at Midwestern University Doctor of Physical Therapy Program. Her area of expertise and research includes BPPV, vestibular rehab, and postural control and balance. She received a Doctorate of Philosophy degree from Northwestern University's Institute of Neuroscience, an advanced Master's of Physical Therapy degree from Northwestern University, and a Bachelor of Science degree in Physical Therapy from Marquette University. She's lectured extensively on the treatment of patients with balance and vestibular dysfunction. Dr. Galgon is associate professor at Temple University Doctor of Physical Therapy Program, where she teaches neuroscience, movement sciences, and clinical management of neuromuscular disorders. She's a board-certified neurologic clinical specialist from the American Board of Physical Therapy Specialties and passed her vestibular therapy competency at Emory University's vestibular rehab competency course. She received her physical therapy degree and her PhD in movement science from Drexel University. And currently, she also practices clinically in an outpatient neuro rehab center. Welcome, and thank you both for joining us. Hello. Hello. We're here. We're here. You're here. Okay, great. So the the first question is for Dr. Hominski. And and Dr. Galgon, at any time, you can join in as well. So the, the new uh, clinical practice guideline that was originally written in 2008 was just rewritten and recently released now. And we noticed there, there's some definitive differences between the, the old CPG and the new CPG. Can you guys highlight what's new with the new CPG and or um, if there's any uh, kind of issues with the CPG? Um, sure. The, uh, what, what's new with the uh, uh, the recent guideline is um, there's been more research over the years in uh, the different maneuvers for both the posterior canal and for the lateral canal. And um, and there's also uh, been more research in um, evaluation of the vertical canals and the lateral canals. And the evidence um, is presented 
uh, more extensively um, in the current uh, CPG. Um, and so what, what's similar to the past CPG is that um, they stress that the diagnosis of BPPV of the posterior canal is based on history and findings on the Dixhell Pike um, test. And they stress that um, subjective BPPV is insufficient to um, render an accurate diagnosis, but that you really need to see um, the nystagmus. And um, in order to um, optimize observation of the nystagmus, uh, a clinician should really be using video oculography or frontal lenses. Um, and um, the, the the other thing that you need to do in order to try to optimize the ability to observe the nystagmus is that patients should really be off vestibular suppressant medications. Um, and um, normally in the clinic, it's recommended that the patients be off of vestibular suppressants for um, roughly 24 hours. And um, if the patients uh, do have a history of vomiting or severe nausea, um, you can pre-medicate with um, medications that do not suppress the ocular um, nystagmus, such as ondansetron or Zofran. Um, and um, uh, the, um, uh, for the lateral canal, um, the, the emphasis is that you need to diagnose based on the history and findings on the supine roll test. Um, and um, more emphasis is placed on try to identify which um, side is involved. Um, and there is a discussion in terms of um, that with lateral canal BPPV, it needs to be a bi-directional um, changing positional nystagmus. Um, but it's not emphasized. It's more um, mentioned in the tables that you have a directional changing uh, nystagmus in the uh, forward and back plane. Um, and this is critical because um, this reversal of direction and nystagmus in the uh, forward and backward plane is necessary in order to differentiate um, uh, lateral canal BPPV from a central paroxysmal positional vertigo. Um, and do you have anything mm -hmm. that you want to add on the uh, evaluation? Um, so, yes, I agree with what you're saying. Um, the evaluation component of the guide primarily focuses on the evaluation of posterior and anterior, I'm sorry, posterior and lateral canal. Um, there's less of a um, the discussion on uh, on the the differential for the um, and some of the differences that might be seen in anterior canal um, from an eva evaluation in this guideline. And I think part of that um, in the guideline is there. Um, they're trying to be cautious about um, providing information that is based on what's available in the literature. Did I answer the question? <laughs> um, the other comment that I have on the anterior canal is um, they mentioned it uh, just because um, there is a, a lower percentage of patients who experience um, anterior canal BPPV, 
and they referenced that uh, with the Dixhout Pike test that a um, uh, anterior canal involvement um, occurs if you see a downbeating nystagmus or torsion towards the dependent ear. Um, and we know that with anterior canal BPPV that you can either have a pure downbeating nystagmus or you can have a downbeating nystagmus with torsion that is either towards the dependent ear or towards the uppermost ear. Um, so mm -hmm. they, they don't go um, into uh, how you really um, evaluate for the anterior canal but it's just um, briefly mentioned. Um, the other thing is they don't emphasize the fact that you need to um, evaluate in both the head right and the head left position, and it's more if you found it negative in the head right position, for example, that then you would test the head left and not that if you um, found it positive in head right, you would also test the head left um, because they believe that the incidence of bilateral BPPV is only around 10%. Um, and the impression when I read it was that they didn't feel that it was necessary then to um, evaluate both canals. And we know as PTs that that's very important to do. Right. So I okay. think as a, the guideline is going, is they're trying to create a guideline, they're putting out from their survey of the literature what they feel like is the best practices. And I think that this guideline mm -hmm. has advanced it by adding new evidence. But I think what um, Janet is saying is that there's some areas where they didn't put forward um, information on that maybe in the literature, but there's not a, there's maybe not as substantial amount of literature that they weren't willing to make recommendations on. So there's definitely room for improvement. Yeah. Okay. And hopefully in the, in the near future, the evidence for especially the anterior canal will increase and hopefully be added to the, the future CPG. Correct. Now, as far as um, post-procedural po post postural restrictions, the, the new CPG uh, made a strong recommendation against these restrictions for posterior canal PPV. A lot of clinicians, however, still use uh, post-CRP precautions um, for their patients. Um, are there any post-procedural recommendations that are supported by evidence-based research? So I think when you read the guide, actually, they, the statement that they made was a strong um, recommendation against. But if you actually read the details within the guideline, they do discuss that there is a few studies that have a little bit of conflicting information. And they also talk about some individuals that may possibly benefit. So uh, I think the example was, and you can correct me, um, Janet, if I'm not right, it's like people that maybe have common reoccurrences, for example. They also kind of state, if you read it carefully, that every decision that you make is a decision between the clinician and the patient. And so they don't, mm -hmm. they, these are just guidelines that they would, rec they would recommend, but you as the clinician working with a patient may choose to um, you know, go against their um, recommendation. So I think sometimes, for example, as a clinician, if my patient is very, very anxious about their situation, I might say, oh, yeah, well, for today, let's just take it easy. Let's not provoke their symptoms. You know, let's you know, maybe for one day 
not put yourself in a position, and then let's see what happens after that. So I think that there's individual decisions. The guidelines are saying that there's probably not much difference in a reoccurrence rates, but what you choose to do your patient with your patient can be different if you have a, a good clinical or practical kind of a rationale. Um, I agree. I think that um, these are guidelines and that they shouldn't supersede our professional judgment and that there is a significant correlation between the side that the um, individual habitually sleeps on and the affected canal, um, and that's been shown by several, um, including Lopez and Escamas um, in 2002, um, and it's been shown by um, um, Kirk in 2006 that patients without activity restrictions require one more treatment session before um, they have a resolution of BPPV um, if uh, they um, 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 than those who have activity restrictions. Um, and um, in a study um, that was done in uh, 2013 by Lee, um, what they found was that um, the instructions that you gave the patients was critical in, in terms of determining uh, what side they slept on. So if patients were, what they found was that um, most patients avoided sleeping on the affected side. So 83% would, if told, you can sleep on any side you want to, but sleep on the unaffected side. And then of those who chose to sleep on the affected side, um, they had a 31% greater chance of recurrence in the first week than if they hadn't slept on the affected side. So I think um, some of these studies, the issue is is the question um, that they're asking. So I use um, uh, post-procedural activity restrictions, um, but, you know, I have them um, sleep semi-recumbent for two nights. I have them avoid provoking positions for one week where they um, sleep using two pillows. They avoid lighting on the involved side. They refrain from vertical and rapid head movements. But I think the extreme precautions of wearing a cervical collar aren't necessary. Um, and then what I always tell my patients is, is that if for some reason you end up on the involved side, it's okay because the worst thing that happens is we'll end up doing another treatment session and we mm -hmm. can get rid of it. Okay. So as far as the patient goes, what key factors should all patients be educated on in regards to BPV recurrence? Uh, safety, and also the importance of follow-up. Dr. Hemmings, you can start with this one. Um, well, with recurrence, uh, you, you have a 25% chance of redeveloping BPPV within a year and a 45% uh, 45 chance of redeveloping within two years. Um, and what they recently have been showing is that um, vitamin D deficiency has been associated with um, uh, recurrence of BPPV, um, and that if they can normalize um, the uh, serum vitamin D levels, um, that it actually reduces the rate of BPPV. So if I have somebody who has a history of recurrence, um, I might rec make a recommendation to the physician to look to see whether or not they have vitamin D deficiency and possibly provide a supplement. Um, then if they have a history of recurrence, um, again, based on my own judgment, um, I um, make recommendations that they sleep on the uninvolved side and they sleep 
um, elevated if possible on two pillows. Okay. Dr. Galgal, so, do you have anything else? Yeah, I don't. I'm. I um. I probably come in the middle here. Um, with her, I definitely educate my patients on the vitamin D, um, and that may be something to investigate um, with the physician to see if they have low vitamin D. Um, I, I don't. If a person has a current reoccurrence, um, I don't necessarily have them do prolonged um, restrictions. I guess, like my mm-hmm. on my opinion, I want my patients to feel like they can move freely and not to avoid movements or positions. Um, I think you, it's a it's a judgment that I educate the patient on how does the crystals get in the ear, what positions might that happen, that there is this high occurrence on, on the, the dependent ear, um, but I don't always um, give them. Too much because I guess I feel like a lot of my patients restrict themselves in many different ways. So in, mm-hmm. in, I'm trying to get them to. It's okay to lie flat to do activities in in a you know in a flat position. And and what is the I consider what maybe the musculoskeletal consequences is always sleeping in the same position. Um, so I may be a little bit more lenient. I I give them education on what causes it, what possible reoccurrences is, and the percentages. Um, and then what you're it's interesting what you're saying Janet that you know a lot of people will just choose not to sleep on their affected ear on their own <laughs> correct mm-hmm. unless they have some musculoskeletal issue that doesn't allow them to sleep on their side yeah right right <laughs> so sometimes i think patients they know what's provoking and they automatically kind of start to restrict themselves yes yeah. without even realizing they're doing it yeah so, Dr. Galgan, is there a minimum time requirement before reassessing the patient after you perform a repositioning maneuver? Yeah. So, uh, in my opinion, um, I like to give my patients a little bit of time so that I know that the crystals have settled. I think the biggest um, issue when some people talk about whether or not um, you can um, and Janet might have a different opinion whether or not you can say if the patient is resolved on the same session. Like, so we should we assess our patients on the same session or should we wait? Um, and the biggest issue is the, the fatigability. And so if you don't allow enough time or, and I do a re, I do the Dix Hall Pike say again, am I just, um, is it fatigue that's causing them not to have nystagmus or, um, it, have I actually resolved um, the nystagmus with the maneuver? And I think that if I let my patients sit um, for up to about 10 minutes, I probably have gotten the system kind of back and gotten those mm-hmm. crystals settled that I would get a positive result if, they, if I did not do a good job. But there's different opinions on that. Um, I don't know what you think, Janet. Yeah, I, I um, Von Breven et al. in 2006 felt that you needed to reevaluate greater than 24 hours after yeah. the initial treatment procedure to try to avoid fatigue. So what I um, try to do is um, I don't do the Dixhell Pike 
within the same session Um, because I feel like when you drop them back into um, like performing a canal three positioning procedure or some maneuver, you know, while you're treating, you're evaluating, you're looking at the effectiveness. And if I waited and then, you know, whatever time frame it was and then drop them back, that I could drop the rocks out. um, And, and even though you could start another cycle, I just would rather not do that. So I usually wait a minimum of 24 hours before I bring them back in, evaluate and treat because I'm trying to avoid fatigue. And then the other thing is is that if they are nauseogenic or if um, uh, they're experiencing uh, vertigo or imbalance, that just giving them that time um, to let their the symptoms settle and come back in I think is also good. So in your the question, I guess I would come back to you on Janet. Are you only doing treating them once, usually once one oh, maneuver no, in no, the no, treatment session? No, no. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's that, that's. Um, I uh, always treat them a minimum of three cycles. Um, okay. And uh, uh, Corn and all in 2007 um, uh, compared uh, one group where they did one cycle and one group where they did four cycles and. Uh, within a treatment session, and they found that um, they had significant improvement if they did uh, four cycles. Um, And so I always do three to four cycles. The only time I don't do that is if I trigger an autonomic response and they're sick. And then once once, um, they're sick, then I'll stop uh, doing the maneuvers and allow their system to settle down. So how long do you wait? between maneuvers then during that cycle? Well, there was a study that was done, and I can't tell you who it was by, um, where they center-fused the otoponium off of frog utricles, and then it was done by the Japanese, and then they um, basically put them back on the utricle and waited to see how long it stuck. It took for them to stick, and it took about two minutes. Um, so the minimal time that you want to wait is two minutes before you do the next cycle. But um, mm-hmm. the patient's symptoms dictate how um, quickly I end up performing the second and the third cycle. Um, so, you know, as you know, some people who have more autonomic sy- symptoms, you have to wait, and it might take you 10 minutes before you do the second cycle. Um, mm-hmm. And then other people who it doesn't bother at all, um, you might be able to do it more quickly, but a minimum of two minutes in between. Right. Okay. So I think that I, um, in our in the clinical practices that I've been, we're primarily weak. The therapists I have found are doing um, up to about three, sometimes four cycles. I guess you're calling a cycle is a maneuver um, in one mm-hmm. session, but on average yeah. we're doing about two. So when we look at what the clinicians do, um, and, you know, when you are assessing, when you're treating the patient, we're also observing the eyes for movement. Oh, and so you get an impression if you're um, reducing the nystagmus within the, the second or third time you do it. Um, and I would say that the number of cycles that I would do or number of maneuvers is really based on the patient response. My plan is when I evaluate a patient is to give myself time to do at least two through the assessment of the patient. Um, and it it really becomes a decision and how the patient is responding and how they feel if I would do anything more than two. 
So you're, you're basically looking to see if there's any response at all during the maneuver, so or any symptoms during the maneuver. And if there's not, then that would be the last maneuver that you perform for that treatment session. Is that correct? That's how I would do it, yes. How about you, Janet? Okay. You, would you do the third one even if you didn't have a response in the second? I, I, I probably would just because um, you can have silent debris, and the silent debris mm-hmm. is when it's um, marginating and rolling down um, the canals, yeah. walls. And so if in doubt, I do the three just because I want to minimize um, uh, the chance of them having to come back and me having to treat them again, even though I always bring them back in a week. But I still would want to um, uh, maximize my outcome, and I would do three. Okay. Yeah, I think the hard thing when you actually look at the design of many of the research studies that have been most of the studies, and depending on the canal, like posterior, they do one maneuver or mm-hmm. two maneuvers is usually what you'll see in a lot of research studies. And so I think um, by practice, that's where I've kind of, I usually try to stick to it. And, it, and I, again, you're trying, I'm trying to do uh, maneuvers with, you know, you're going to provoke your patients, but it's to what you can do and what the patient can tolerate um, within your session. Correct. And this one's for Dr. Hominski. Are there any common vestibular disorders that are frequently mistaken for BPPV that should be considered when making a differential diagnosis in patients with dizziness? Um, yes. Uh, uh, the first um, comment that I have is um, if you're questioning uh, the person's diagnosis, that um, the most important part of the history is the first week. Um, in terms of what the person's symptoms were, um, and titrate has um, come out, which is looks at the timing, the triggers, and then based on the timing and the triggers, the targeted history and an examination to try to determine um, what the vestibular dysfunction is. And so if you look at BPPV, according to uh, the um, titrate system, um, it's classified as a triggered episodic um, vestibular syndrome. So your concern is is that you're trying to differentiate it from other triggered episodic vestibular syndromes. So the most common one that you're trying to differentiate it from is orthostatic hypotension. Um, mm-hmm. And um, as we all know, with orthostatic hypotension, they um, tend to uh, feel dizzy or off balance when they go from sit to stand. Um, so anytime uh, in the history they complain of orthostatic or they complain of dizziness or lightheadedness when they're going from sitting to standing, you know, it right away um, makes me think in terms of orthostatic hypotension. The other thing that you want to look um, consider is whether or not it's um, central paroxysmal positional vertigo. Um, so these are the patients that have the atypical um, nystagmuses, and it could be that they have a downbeating nystagmus, or it could be that they have a directional changing horizontal nystagmus on the Dixhell Pike. And um, a downbeating nystagmus or a directional changing horizontal um, nystagmus could mean that they have damage to the brainstem or to the cerebellum. And then your concern is is if they have a posterior facet tumor or if they have a stroke. Um, and the other uh, thing that can cause um, uh, directional changing uh, nystagmus is intoxication with alcohol or if they're um, uh, taking uh, sedative drugs. 
Mm -hmm. um, you, then, and so um, um, I've seen that in patients where you, you think they have apogeotrophic PPPV and it's not apogeotrophic PPPV, it's uh, the effects of alcohol. Um, mm -hmm. Another thing that you have to take into account is uh, low spinal fluid pressure. Um, and again, usually they feel better when they lay flat um, than when they're sitting up. And then uh, the last thing that you have to take into account is migraine. Um, just because a third of all migraines will have some sort of positional nystagmus and um, they can have it at the time that they're having the migraine and they can have it when they don't have the migraine. I agree <laughs> with all of that. <laughs> okay. Dr. Galagon, are, are for uh, individuals with bilateral BPPV, are there any recommendations on how many canals to treat per day? Yeah. Um, so the uh, generally my, uh, my recommendation is try to treat one thing at a time, one canal at a time, um, especially because you, in certain conditions, or for example, in horizontal canal, if you have it, if you're, I'm going to get myself, maybe not say this correctly, if you're rolling in a certain direction, you can affect the system. So I do think about it very carefully, and I try to just affect one canal at a time, and then, mm -hmm. and then evaluate the system afterwards. So when I get bilaterals, I'm not going to probably have the time to to effectively treat each canal in a single session. So in my mind, I'm going to kind of focus on one and then bring them back and evaluate them. If they're in the same ear, but like two canals, like a posterior and a horizontal, you might be effective at treating both at the same time. But if you're in both ears, I think it's a very difficult thing. I don't know, Janet, if you have a different approach on that. No, I agree with you. If it's um, bilateral BPPV and... Um, uh, and it's affecting both posterior canals. <clears throat> I'll opt to do a laboratory maneuver over a canal three positioning procedure because I think the laboratory maneuver doesn't affect the opposite side as much as a canal three positioning procedure would. Um, and then, you know, if um, uh, y you have uh, two canals that are involved with that are on the same side, I always treat the side with the strongest vector. Um, I, or the ear with the strongest vector, the, the canal rather with the strongest vector. So if they have um, lateral canal and posterior canal, and the posterior canal is stronger than the lateral canal, I'll treat the posterior canal. Um, the only time that I'll um, treat uh, two different canals within the same day is if when I'm treating the posterior canal and I canal convert to a lateral canal, then I'll end up mm -hmm. treating um, the lateral canal canal conversion within the same session. I, I would do this. That would be the same, same with me. I would, and that does happen. <laughs> yeah, that makes total sense. So the, the algorithm for performing uh canal three positioning procedure includes assessing any contraindications to performing the procedure. What are the most common contraindications that all clinicians should screen for when considering treating BPPV? Dr. Helminski? Well, I think that the, um, Clinical practice guidelines did a really nice job of going through it, um, the, the cautions. Um, you know, if they have significant um, cerebrovascular disease, you want to be very cautious. And, you know, we all know that the vertebral artery test is not 
very sensitive, but it's something that we should do before we do the Dixell Pike maneuver. And you want to test um, for the vertebral artery uh, with the person up in sitting um, to try to minimize the effects of gravity um, on the canal in case they do have BPPV and a positive vertebral artery test. And then you also want to make sure that um, the ne neck ligaments are stability, so you want to do an alar ligament test. Um, but then when it comes to the cautions, um, just because the person has um, one of the diagnoses doesn't mean that you don't treat them. It just means that you need to modify um, for the person so that you don't harm them. So maybe instead of doing a true Dix-Helpike test, you might um, invert them on a tilt table or something like that. So um, caution you should take um, with are the diagnoses of a cervical stenosis, a severe kyphoscoliosis, um, and again, um, if they have a severe kyphoscoliosis, maybe you might be better off testing them in a sideline test as opposed to a Dixell Pike test. Um, if they have cervical uh, range of motion limitations or Down syndromes, with Down syndrome, it's not the fact that they have Down syndrome, but it's, fact, it's the fact that they might have um, lax ligaments up at C1, C2. Um, the same thing with severe rheumatoid arthritis. It's more that you're concerned about the lax ligaments that they might have in the upper cervical spine. Um, cervical radiculopathies, Paget's disease, ankylosing spondylitis, with low back dysfunction, the concern isn't that um, uh, that the maneuver is going to be difficult on them. It's it's um, you know what you're doing, so to speak, the positioning with relative to their back. So what I always tell my patients is, if you need to put a pillow underneath your knees, that's fine. If you need to use your arms to lower yourself back down, that's fine. What I care about is the position of the head relative to gravity, not what you're doing with your legs and what you're doing with your back. Um, you need to be careful with spinal cord injuries. You need to be careful with people who are morbidly obese. Um, and then the one that a lot of times we don't think about is if they have a history of a torn or a detached retina. Um, and if they have a history of a torn or a detached retina, if you use vibration, you don't want to use it on somebody like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think you cover most of them. But, again, as she said, many of the, the issues are precautions and that, you know, if you're doing a good job of assessing the range of motion um, and and the if they have any symptom provocation in an upright position, then you you can you can modify. You know, as she said, mm -hmm. you know, it's the head of the position in space or the movement, not necessarily um, the alignment that you're getting. And so you can lock the body in the neck and do either tilt table or not extend the neck um, and, and be able to get a, a good diagnosis. Yeah, rotate the body rather than rotate the neck, yeah. Right. Or eat, sometimes I'll do even just, you know, like a quarter, a quarter body turn and to get the 45 head rotation mm -hmm. rather than um, having that patient um, actually rotate their head. When you're doing the supine roll test, you can have the, body, the person do a whole body roll rather than rotate the head 90 degrees, mm -hmm. for example. So, Dr. Galvin, is it common for patients to experience balance impairment during and after an episode of BPPV, and can that be addressed with vestibular rehab? And do you have any recommendations regarding assessing balance in patients with BPPV? Yeah. So, yeah, it, is, it can be quite common for individuals to have balance complaints with BPVB. 
um, either before or afterwards. It's, so it's always a precaution when you do evaluate them and treat them afterwards. They can have a temporary disorientation and have balance problems. Many of the individuals that we're treating are older and may have other um, impairments that may affect their balance as well. And so when they get PPVP, you can see a dramatic increase in balance, um, overall balance. Um, if I'm evaluating a patient um, who has come in and I am from the history, I'm really thinking that it's gonna be BPPV and I wanna give times for maneuvers. I do a basic screen of their balance um, mm -hmm. and just to see overall, it may be like um, the modified CATSIP, um, which the foam, the foam eyes open because I close, I might observe their gait for their balance. So I have a, just a baseline. I probably don't take the time to do a full balance eval because I want to treat the patient in the time period given to me. Um, and mm -hmm. then after I treat them, I want everything to settle down um, before I would measure their balance again because maybe over a, a week, their balance can improve a lot after you've treated them. So I don't want to start a balance program with someone until I know that the PPV is resolved. So I'll bring them out and reassess them and at that point decide if they need intervention for balance. That's the general way that we do it in our clinic. I agree. You don't want to um, spend a lot of time evaluating somebody's balance when their balance is off because they have BPPV and you can get rid of it with one treatment session. Um, and um, they report that 50% of patients after they've been treated will have balance dysfunction and that the balance dysfunction can last for up to three weeks. And if it's due to um, uh, an imbalance um, in uh, the crystals um, being on the maculae, um, then sometimes what I'll do if somebody's off is I'll give them standing sway exercises because it's not really doing anything to the head, but it's recalibrating the system and it's getting them orientated to upright. Um, and then um, a lot of times it will resolve on its own, but like Ann said, you kind of give it time to settle and then once it's settled out, then you bring them back in and at that point then you would do a full balance assessment. Okay. Dr. Hamonsky, this one's for you. Um, I've had patients ask about the half somersault repositioning maneuver they've seen on YouTube. Can you comment on the evidence supporting this maneuver, and do you see this maneuver gaining wider acceptance? Um, yes. So the half somersault maneuver, um, a lot of patients get on the Internet and they YouTube it, and um, they think that uh, it's um, uh, a good thing to do. Um, and, you know, my, my caution is that you need to do the Dixell Pike test to confirm that the person really has BPPV and to identify which canal is involved. Um, and then if you take a physical model of the canal, like usually I take a ring that has beads on it, and if you, if you um, look at the maneuver, um, the maneuver does mechanically move the old conium um, when... Uh, um, uh, you put the person through uh, the series of positions. The concern that I have is um, the ability to maintain the position if they have a, a vertigo attack or if they become disoriented with their position in space. Um, and then um, uh, 
how um, do you manage the symptoms during the maneuver. Um, and um, the other concern that I have is because you're not controlling the head and you're not controlling the positions, what can uh -huh. happen is um, people can end up developing multi-canal BPPV. And about three weeks ago, I had a patient in the clinic who decided to do um, 20 cycles of the half somersault before I saw him. And he ended oh, up with multi-canal BPPV where he had epigeotrophic lateral canal BPPV and anterior canal BPPV. So I have real concerns about people using it. Um, and the other thing that I think is interesting is that the study that was done comparing the epile to the half somersault, um, they only had a 37% uh, resolution in the epile and a 27% resolution with the half somersault. And then they had a line that said, but typically we get an 84% resolution. And so um, it's not that effective. And then, mm -hmm. um, uh, then the patients say that they like to do the half somersault over the epile because it doesn't make them as dizzy. Well, to me, if it's not making them as dizzy, what it means okay. is it's not effectively moving the debris where it needs mm -hmm. to go. So um, I think it's a fad, um, and I don't recommend it to my patients. Yeah, I, yeah so I have had very little experience of actually using it because I feel pretty strong um, in the evidence for the upway maneuver. And so I, to me, it was like, well, show me the evidence. And again, there's really only one published article on it and with the one that Dr. Hemonsky had, Janet, had talked about. And it mm -hmm. really was not a very good quality as far as their outcome measures. They were looking at intensity of nystagmus and they were saying that nystagmus intensity decreased. Well, that is not really a finding to say that you've resolved the problem. So there was some um, methodology problems and then the overall result was very um, low compared to other studies. So you have to question, you know, how were these maneuvers being done on these individuals? Um, so you know, if again, if we are trying to be evidence-based, yes, sometimes we'll find information that may not be a randomized controlled trial, but adds to our knowledge that we might use. This one doesn't seem to help me. Given that, on the other day, I had a patient who had a very successful response after I had treated him, and he got very nauseous, so we didn't do more than one cycle with him, and then he came back the next time and he said, oh, I found this online and he treated himself and he felt better. <laughs> so I don't know. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm open, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not convinced that this is anything I'm really going to teach a patient how to do. But okay. I, I think that we the should maneuver be cautious. brings we up, should be very cautious. Yeah. I think the maneuver though brings up a good point that the clinical practice guide brings up is that um, you know, with these maneuvers, you want to try to mechanically um, remove the debris out of the canal. And if you look at the com computer simulations that have been done by Rajguru in 2004 and Feld in, in 2008, they all say that you need to have a 360-degree turn of the head in uh -huh. order to um, clear out the canal. Um, and, you know, if you look at the clinical practice guideline, you know, it, 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 um, demonstrates that the canal three positioning procedure is six and a half times um, better than a placebo at um, um, improving 
both the symptoms and resolving the BPPV. Um, and it, the other thing that it shows is that the Canal 3 positioning procedure is as effective as the Epley maneuver um, in, in, in treating patients. What I think is interesting is that specialty settings have better results than primary care settings, which is probably because they have more experience in identifying the canal involved and more experience in performing the maneuver. But the one thing that I think is really important is that they do not recommend using the Brandt-Daroff exercises um, and that a single canal of three positioning maneuver is 10 times more effective than performing um, daily Brandt-Daroff exercises three times a day for a week. Um, and that they have found in studies that um, if you use the Canal 3 positioning procedure, that within a week um, you have a negative uh, Dix-Hell-Pike response in 81% of your patients. And if you treat with Brandt-Daroff exercises, you only have a 25% um, success rate, which is actually less than what you see with spontaneous remission. Um, and the differences remain the same at a month. So I think one of the things that's really important about this guideline is showing us that we have to be really careful about whether or not we're removing the debris mechanically out of the vestibule. And it's been shown that the Brandt-Daroff exercises are not effective. We're going to run out of time here. So I'd like to thank Dr. Dr. Hominski and Dr. Gagan for joining us on this podcast. Check out the Vestibular SIGs website for past podcasts and newly scheduled new ones as well. From the entire Vestibular SIG podcast team, thank you for joining us tonight, and good night. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Guys,